This evening's talk is about wise concentration. And we'll begin with three Pali words, sila, samadhi, and panya. And these words translate into English, ethics or ethical behavior or virtue, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many, many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom or insight. These three form the three branches of mental development that are essential for all Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or these capacities of heart, of mind, virtue and concentration are what lead one into vipassana or the deeply penetrative understanding that comes through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights. The first insight, that of anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena. And the second insight, that of dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences. And the third insight, the impersonality of all of the mental and physical phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one on to the final liberating insights. In the Buddha's words, as he often did, he starts with a question and then he goes on to answer it himself. And he says, if concentration, samadhi, is developed, what profit does it bring? The mind is developed, he says. And he goes on, if the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? All lust is abandoned. And he goes on, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? Wisdom is developed. If wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? All ignorance is abandoned. And so concentration, samadhi or samatha meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation, in particular alternating uh, sequences, they're developed that way throughout our, the whole of our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes about through the practice, the process, and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, virtue with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of sila, virtue, deepen and as they mature, we come to understand through our very own direct experience what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on a very deep and subtle level, and what brings suffering confusion, what brings dis-ease. Intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us, 
are our habits of attraction, such as greed, clinging, attachment, and our habits of aversion, worry, resistance, anger, fear, and the identification with these states. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in the very here and now in this momentary round right now of our worldly suffering which in Pali is called samsara these habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration and these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal that of recognizing the nature of things recognizing ultimate reality and thus keep us from awakening keep us from liberation the true nature of things what we could call ultimate reality is the principle that all mental and physical phenomena people mountains galaxies California Iran New Mexico dogs adobe bugs thoughts rain Denver, New York, Santa Fe, the sun, your favorite restaurant, the Amtrak train system, all are understood, are regarded as being without substantial sustaining essence, being without any separate solid self-identity. Nothing exists by itself. Everything is completely interdependent. Because of this, that. Because of that, this. So nothing, nothing exists in any separate, solid self-identity in the reality of things. In order to see, really see, the true nature of existing phenomena, We need to purify the mental cloudiness, to part the veil, so to say. Untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs via the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya. In speaking to Ananda, who was one of the Buddha's chief disciples, in the Kimata Sutta, the Buddha again asks a question and then again proceeds to answer the question. <clears throat> and he says, What is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And he says then, Skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their reward, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their, excuse me, skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose, knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its reward. 
In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of arahantship, arahantship being the complete liberation from suffering, the end of suffering, which is the fourth stage of enlightenment. And in speaking to his nuns and monks directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said this. He said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience and sometimes from some of our most difficult experiences or maybe what we deem to be our mistakes as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that purification is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this evening taking a look at the active force of samadhi or concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful and lucid state of mind that's attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind which is ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reining the mind in from all of its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the very simple present so that our mental and physical energy isn't being used up or isn't being usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The Visuddhimagga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uses a number of very graphic metaphors to describe the process of the act of concentration. And so I'd like to share a couple of these with you. The bee follows up the scent of a flower and then dives towards the flower, first stopping and buzzing above it, getting to know it, we could say, before diving into it, before absorbing into it. So a metaphor from the Visuddhimagga, a metaphor for preliminary access and absorption concentration. And another metaphor that's offered in this same book, uh, the Visuddhimagga, that I particularly relate to because uh, of my own experience in making pottery. And this is, this is that metaphor. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay holding, staying there with a very strong and focused, relaxed attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining attention and energy. Totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter with a continued focus of attention, with one hand directly on the clay, 
steadily holding and supporting the clay. The other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which is the object of of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it as a bowl forms. So really quite a graphic uh, and very visceral metaphor, particularly for any of you who have tried to work on a potter's wheel. A very graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and process of concentration. With the mind, the heart, moving into deeper states of samadhi, possibly the jhana states. The power of a clear, relaxed and focused mind, a concentrated mind, it brings together and stimulates or re-stimulates itself again and again and again. Re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is, pure, clear and calm, which is quite an energizing and refreshing and often beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the beautiful and purifying current of samadhi or concentration, I think it would be uh, helpful for us to begin exploring and learning a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, peace, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana, cannot grow when the unwholesome mind states of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, doubt, when any of these are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration. So for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, such as the breath as we're doing in this retreat, and you're very anxious or very worried during the process, it will prevent you from being calm and joyful. Why is that? Because worry enslaves us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought, as we've already talked about a bit, to not be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing to cut through thought, even thoughts which might seem very important in the moment. And it's very important to note, as I've mentioned a bit already, that it isn't about kicking out thoughts. Kicking out thoughts is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. What's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention and seeing and knowing when the attention is getting muddled 
when the attention is getting lost in something other than what is intended. And this is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of the practice. Because the mind can get lost, as you well know, the mind can get lost in myriad mundane and seemingly even lofty thoughts and actions, thinking that whatever it is is really, really important. I had such an experience uh, during a three-month concentration jhana retreat that I was um, sitting with my teacher, Pawak Sayadaw. For the first week or so of this retreat, every day after lunch, I would make myself a fancy cup of tea. I would take two or three different loose teas and mixing them together uh, in a tea ball for my fancy cup of tea. It's seemingly a very important and necessary treat that I needed, that I wanted. And after about a week of doing this, I noticed a box of tea bags sitting on the counter right in front of me. Same, uh, same kind of tea as one of the teas, the loose teas that I was putting in my fancy mix. And I hadn't noticed this box of tea particularly until that day, though it had been there every day. And then the thought came when I noticed this box of tea. I thought, do I really need this? All this fancy tea uh, preparation and seeming need, is this, is this really important? And the answer came, no. No, it's not at all important. It's merely a habitual distraction. So that day I made a simple cup of tea with the tea bag and I enjoyed it. And what happened after this is what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times throughout the rest of the three-month retreat, the question would come up, is this really important? It would come up in relationship to various mundane actions, and in relationship to various thoughts and various thought patterns. And the answer was almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, no. No, this isn't really important. And I would just simply let go then of whatever it was at that point. The development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And this can be quite subtle at times. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration is that the heart, the mind, is continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, of aversion, of lethargy, restlessness, doubt. Classically, the development of concentration in jhana is described as the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. As the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Concentration or samatha or samadhi or the development of calm, of concentration weakens all of the hindrances. It considerably weakens all of the unwholesome states of mind as it develops. When calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, bliss, peace, 
and equanimity, the fruits of concentration. When these clearly begin to manifest, the hindrances, the unwholesome mind states are temporarily completely eliminated as well as profoundly weakened in the long term, particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. And even more specifically so, if one has the inclination towards attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana concentration. So taking a bit of a look now, at how the different factors of deep concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that hinder the, d- the development of concentration and that also hinder the unfolding of insight, hinder the unfolding of wisdom. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote to feeling perturbed. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind a much greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind which is what you all are engaged in here. Initially applying the mind, aiming and applying the attention again and again and again to the object. The word for this in Pali is vitaka. Establishing the mind on the object, such as the breath. This eliminates dullness, sleepiness, stiffness. the sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustaining attention on the object, again such as the breath. And in Pali the word for this is vichara. This eliminates uncertainty, eliminates doubt. The deeply concentrated state of joyful zest, bright happiness, an elation in the mind resulting from the purity of heart and mind. And the word for this in Pali is piti. This brings a very delighted interest in and liking for the object of attention. Again, as the breath, such as the breath. With the development of a deepening concentration. And then with the first and second jhana in a very deeply absorbed state of concentration, there's much, much delight and liking of the object of attention, which is one of the aspects, actually, of the direct experience of jhana itself. And at this point, all forms of ill will are completely temporarily eliminated. And going on, the deeply concentrated state of bliss, contentment, a sweet, easeful happiness. The word for this is sukha in Pali. And this is not a pleasant bodily feeling, but it's a very blissful, contented mental feeling. And when this occurs to varying degrees with deepening concentration, And then much more profoundly in the third jhana, restlessness, agitation, and regret or worry are completely, totally, temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of deep concentration, the word for this in Pali is ikagata, again occurring to varying degrees during the developmental stages of deepening concentration, and then happening in a much more profound and sustaining way during the absorption in the fourth jhana. 
This is the experience of absolute centeredness, balance, and equanimity, completely eliminating sensuous desire for anything, anything at all during that particular time. As concentration practice develops and moves along and the imperfections, the states that corrupt the natural purity of the mind, the natural purity of the heart, when at least some of these imperfections have been clearly let go, have been abandoned, have been relinquished, at that time one really, truly knows and gains a much fuller, deeper confidence, confidence in and connection to one's own practice. When this confidence arises, the mind and heart often experience a great inspiration, an enthusiasm, and an appreciation connected to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and also often to one's own particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them. A great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. And with the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and a taste of elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, without any attachment or personal identification in those moments, the body and mind eventually become very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy are removed. They disappear with the calm and the quiet. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. When we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt without any attachment, without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deepened or deepening concentration. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind which opens the heart to a wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on it goes. At this point, the mind and the heart are very strong. The nature of concentration is threefold. Or in other words, there are three types or three levels of concentration that can develop and serve our insight practice. The first of these is what's called momentary concentration. And this is the development and the growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object and then another object and then another another object, one by one by one and ongoing, moment by moment. 
the cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice. The second type or level of concentration is called access concentration. And this is a very deep and very powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or jhana concentration. And it can be re-accessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of jhana. Access, access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and the depth of jhana concentration, but it's not an absorbed concentration. It doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana. With excess concentration, the mind is very malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object, even though it contains close to the same intensity of the deeply absorbed jhana states. So from this perspective, access concentration can be very helpful and useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. And as I've already mentioned, during that time, the mind is temporarily, completely and totally purified of all unwholesome mind states. While at the same time, unwholesome states of mind and body are profoundly weakened in the long run, though they're not totally and finally eliminated. It's actually only through vipassana, through insight practice, that unwholesome or afflictive states are completely and finally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally take place in our vipassana practice, particularly momentary concentration, especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less attachment, and less identification. The development of jhana and access concentration takes a very specific and a very concerted effort that's really not everyone's inclination or interest. And it's also not absolutely necessary for the potential of a liberating vipassana or insight practice to unfold. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet and to wholeheartedly absorb into experience with no self, no me, no I am while at the same time really being uh, clearly present and mindfully aware of what's taking place with no pondering, no thinking about what's occurring, but meeting it immediately, directly, just as it is. In this light, I'd like to share a simple and illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices and finding that in fact they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it's said that the 
Bodhisattva, the about to be Buddha, or eventually to be Buddha. And that word Bodhisattva, I'll define it, the Pali word Bodhi means uh, awakening or enlightenment. And Sata is uh, a being dedicated to or having the very strong intention to awaken or to Bodhi. So a Bodhisattva. It said that Siddhartha Gautama, which was the name of the Buddha before he became the Buddha, and he was a Bodhisattva. He said he asked himself, after spending six years uh, engaging in extreme ascetic practices, he asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? Because the ascetic practices weren't bringing him or leading him to what he was looking for. In reflection to this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the men in the community rich and poor alike, come together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha quite spontaneously and quite naturally sat up in the meditation posture comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree. And he was observing the scene that was unfolding before him with a very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting and not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen as they worked. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hoofs and the cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they were working. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of the bird song, as well as the sharp, shrill cries of the birds as they dove and they pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs, the worms, and the broken bodies of the mice that were left out on the upturned soil. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the sweet-smelling apple tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene that was going on before him, and in his heart finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away, no picking and no choosing. As he silently sat quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, and taking all of this in without prejudice, without attachment, and finding himself all alone 
and quite spontaneously and naturally he attained the first jhana through mindfulness of breathing experiencing a very bright sweet pleasure and happiness that was not born out of desire for or clinging to anything and in his young mind a deep intuitive understanding was seated as a young man in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of body of the body and then remembering this boyhood experience the thought occurred to siddhartha could that be the path to enlightenment and it said that following up on this memory from his childhood the bodhisattva became filled with tremendous energy and a sureness that in fact this was the path to liberation and so he resolved to sit quietly and to press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding until he reached the true freedom that he was seeking this was a turning point for the buddha to be in his quest for awakening in his quest for enlightenment this was a turning point and a change in his evaluation of pleasure in that it was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of austerities at that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation siddhartha realized that the confusion the misunderstanding the delusion the greed anger anguish and hatred all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be and in fact couldn't be purified banished released let go of or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them or trying to live through them or toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships or by struggling by trying very hard to let go of the painful states of mind related to extreme austere practices or by trying to lose oneself in physical and mental self-created hardship and if you consider your own life how many times in small even in tiny ways or possibly even in extreme ways have you out of ignorance out of delusion out of misunderstanding been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies various situations activities relationships that have created hardship and a certain flavor of austerity in your life and maybe even extreme hardship or austerity and in your own way doing just what the buddha did and thinking just as he did that this would somehow bring a sustaining joy and happiness and ease into your life potentially a certain kind of strength may be gained but the light at the end of the tunnel so to say the light of liberation can never be seen felt or known with this way as a young man in remembering his childhood experience siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared no longer to be banished through the practice of extreme austerities that this would never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being he understood that when pleasure is born internally 
within a mind, within a heart that is secluded, free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, of restlessness, greed, clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path of liberation. And that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, or confusion. And that in fact it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, of a mind that's liberated, that's awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisattva had the insight that deep concentration, and for him, jhana, was a step on the way to enlightenment, an important and useful step on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed it, in a discourse that he wrote in a conversation with one of his students named Sakaka. He said this, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And as the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka, that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in the extreme, the extreme austere practices. And that very soon after he made this decision, he was offered some solid food by a young village girl, and he then regained his strength. And he continues talking with Sakaka and says that he then went and sat in meditation under the Bodhi tree and quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, he explained to Sakaka, he said, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability. He tells Sakaka that he then systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges, one by one, through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed, purified mind and heart is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to and nothing to push away or run from. And this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us, as we probably have already discovered. <laughs> we so often have a mind that's made up, often quite absolutely made up, made up about how it's supposed to be, or made up about how it's not, isn't supposed to be, or what's good, or what's bad, or what is definitely true, we definitely know is true, or what we definitely know isn't true. And we 
also so often have a mind made up about what we must have or what we must not have to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up. A mind that in fact clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly clearly and honestly meeting the moment that we're in. Any moment. Keeping us in conflict. Keeping us shut off from the vastness of possibility. Keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, the mind, from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. And as I mentioned earlier this evening, the teachings and the practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of virtue, the current of samadhi or samatha, the teachings and practices of concentration, and the current of vipassana, the teaching and the practice of wisdom, of insight. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of life. Carry us to the other side, to the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed heart, an undisturbed mind. The current of samadhi, the current of concentration, including the possibility of the states of a deeply absorbed concentration, jhana, are beautiful, potentially healing, and very powerful states in and of themselves. And at whatever level, one is able to develop a concentrated mind. From the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it so that we really recognize, truly recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of this sleepy cloud of delusion. And so as awakening beings, here we are today, more than 2,500 years later, after the story about the Buddha's life that I've just shared with you, and thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and powerful six years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and very amazing gift and clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, patience, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with a deep kindness and patience. These wholesome and beautiful qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya. 
and without a doubt are some of the most basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of practice stem from. I'd like to close the talk this evening with a Mary Oliver poem that speaks to this evening's topic in her uh, quite unique and beautiful way and in relationship to this evening's topic in a somewhat uh, oblique and yet quite moving way. She calls this poem Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness. And that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment, while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but him, himself, and all his brothers, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. At the end of um, the Mountain Hermitage Dhamma Talk evenings, we chant uh, the sharing of blessings, which you all have a copy of. And it's in English, (laughs) which some of you will be grateful for.
and there are some people in this room that know this chant, so again I ask you to chant it wholeheartedly in support of those that don't know it. And it's very simple, actually, so join in as you can. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice. And through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind. With mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor, may the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.